Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. An announcement before we begin today's episode. When I started this podcast two years ago, I was pretty content with life, for probably the first time in my life. I was comfortably single, I had plenty of time to pursue my interests, and I had clear goals I was working toward. A few months later, a fiercely independent girl strode into my world and turned all that upside down. I drew her in, and she introduced novelty and chaos into my life. She is exactly the brand of crazy I love, and somehow my own craziness seems to delight her as well. Melissa, you have made me happier than I ever knew I could be, and I mean that literally. I did not believe this level of consistent happiness was possible, and it sometimes makes me doubt the very reality of the world I live in. I only hope I can make you as happy as you make me. Melissa Kessler, will you marry me? Second half of Chapter 85 Taboo Tradeoffs Aftermath 3 Distance Are you really going to try to follow the path of the superhero and never sacrifice a single piece or kill a single enemy? Fatigued, Harry turned his attention away from the dilemma for a moment, opened his eyes again to regard the hemisphere of night which required no decisions from him. Near the edge of his vision, the pale white crescent of the moon the light from which had left one and a quarter seconds ago, around 375,000 kilometers of distance in Earth's space of simultaneity. Above and to the side, Polaris, the North Star, the first star Harry had learned to identify in the sky by following the edge of the Big Dipper. That was actually a five-star system with a brilliant center supergiant, 434 light-years from Earth. It was the first star whose name Harry had ever learned from his father, so long ago that he couldn't have guessed how old he'd been. The dim fog that was the Milky Way, so many billions of distant stars that they became an indistinct river, the plane of a galaxy that stretched 100,000 light-years across. If Harry had experienced any sense of wonder when he'd first been told that, he'd been too young for him to remember now that first time across a few years' distance. In the center of the constellation Andromeda, the star Andromeda, which was really the Andromeda galaxy, the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way, 2.4 million light-years away, containing an estimated trillion stars. Numbers like those made infinity pale by comparison, because infinity was just featureless and blank. Thinking that the stars were infinitely distant was a lot less scary than trying to work out what 2.4 million light-years amounted to in meters. 2.4 million light-years, times 31 million seconds in a year, times a photon moving at 300 million meters per second. It was strange to think that such distances might not be unreachably far away. Magic was loose in the universe. Things like time-turners and broomsticks. Had any wizard ever tried to measure the speed of a port key or a phoenix? And the human understanding of magic couldn't possibly be anywhere near the underlying laws. What would you be able to do with magic if you really understood it? A year ago, Dad had gone to the Australian National University in Canberra for a conference where he'd been an invited speaker, and he'd taken Mum and Harry along. 
and they'd all visited the National Museum of Australia because, it had turned out, there was basically nothing else to do in Canberra. The glass display cases had shown rock throwers crafted by the Australian Aborigines. Like giant wooden shoehorns, they'd looked, but smoothed and carved and ornamented with painstaking care. In the 40,000 years since anatomically modern humans had migrated to Australia from Asia, nobody had invented the bow and arrow. It really made you appreciate how non-obvious was the idea of progress. Why would you even think of invention as something important, if all your history's heroic tales were of great warriors and defenders, instead of Thomas Edison? How could anyone have suspected, while carving a rock thrower with painstaking care, that someday human beings would invent rocket ships and nuclear energy? Could you have looked up into the sky, at the brilliant light of the sun, and deduced that the universe contained greater sources of power than mere fire? Would you have realized that if the fundamental physical laws permitted it, someday humans would tap the same energies as the sun? Even if nothing you could imagine doing with rock throwers or woven pouches, no pattern of running across the savanna and nothing you could obtain by hunting animals would accomplish that even in imagination. It wasn't like modern-day muggles had gotten anywhere near the limits of what muggle physics said was possible. And yet, like rock hunters conceptually bound to their rock throwers, most muggles lived in a world defined by the limits of what you could do with cars and telephones. Even though muggle physics explicitly permitted possibilities like molecular nanotechnology or the Penrose process for extracting energy from black holes, most people filed that away in the same section of their brains that stored fairy tales and history books, well away from their personal realities. Long ago and far away, ever so long ago. No surprise, then, that the wizarding world lived in a conceptual universe bounded, not by fundamental laws of magic that nobody even knew, but just by the surface rules of known charms and enchantments. You couldn't observe the way magic was practiced nowadays and not be reminded of the National Museum of Australia once you realized what you were seeing. Even if Harry's first guess had been mistaken, one way or another it was still inconceivable that the fundamental laws of the universe contained a special case for human lips shaping the phrase Wingardium Leviosa. And yet, even that fumbling grasp of magic was enough to do things that muggle physics said should be forever impossible. The time-turner. Water conjured out of nothingness by Aguamenti. What were the ultimate possibilities of invention if the underlying laws of the universe permitted an eleven-year-old with a stick to violate almost every constraint in the muggle version of physics? Like a hunter-gatherer trying to look up at the sun, and guess that the universe had to be shaped in a way that allowed for nuclear energy. It made you wonder if maybe 20,000 million 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 meters wasn't so much distance after all. There was a step beyond abstract reasoning Harry which he could take, given enough time to compose himself and the right surroundings. Something beyond abstract Harry, as that was beyond Harry in the moment. Looking up at the stars, you could try to imagine what the distant descendants of humanity would think of your dilemma. In a hundred million years, when the stars would have spun through great galactic movements into entirely new positions, 
every constellation scattered. It was an elementary theorem of probability that if you knew what your answer would be after updating on future evidence, you ought to adopt that answer right now. If you knew your destination, you were already there. And by analogy, if not quite by theorem, if you could guess what the descendants of humanity would think of something, you ought to go ahead and take that as your own best guess. From that vantage point, the idea of killing off two-thirds of the Wizengamot seemed a lot less appealing than it had a few hours earlier. Even if you had to do it, even if you knew for a solid fact that it would be the best thing for Magical Britain, and that the complete story of time would look worse if you didn't do it, even as a necessity, the deaths of sentient beings would still be a tragedy. One more element for the sorrows of Earth the most ancient earth from which everything had begun, long ago and far away, ever so long ago. He is not like Grindelwald, Harry. There is nothing human left in him. Him you must destroy. Save your fury for that and that alone. Harry shook his head slightly, tilting the stars a little in his vision, as he lay on the stone floor looking upward and outward and forward in time. Even if Dumbledore was right, and the true enemy was utterly mad and evil, in a hundred million years, the organic life-form known as Lord Voldemort probably wouldn't seem much different from all the other bewildered children of ancient Earth. Whatever Lord Voldemort had done to himself... Whatever dark ritual seemed so horribly irrevocable on a merely human scale, it wouldn't be beyond curing with the technology of a hundred million years. Killing him, even if you had to do it to save the lives of others, would be just one more death for future sentient beings to be sad about. How could you look up at the stars and believe anything else? Harry stared up at the twinkling lights of eternity and wondered what the children's children's children would think of what Dumbledore had maybe done to Narcissa. But even if you tried framing the question that way, asking what humanity's descendants would think, it still drew only on your own knowledge, not theirs. The answer still came from inside yourself, and it could still be mistaken. If you didn't know the hundredth decimal digit of pi yourself, then you didn't know how the children's children's children would calculate it for all that the fact was trivial. Slowly, he'd been lying there, looking at the stars for longer than he'd planned, Harry sat up from the ground. Pushing himself to his feet, the muscles protesting, he walked over to the edge of the stone platform at the height of the Ravenclaw Tower. The stone crenellations surrounding the edge of the tower weren't high, not high enough to be safe. They were markers, clearly, rather than railings. Harry didn't approach too close to the edge. There was no point in taking chances. Looking down at the Hogwarts grounds below, he was predictably feeling a sense of dizziness, the wobbly affliction called vertigo. His brain was alarmed, it seemed, because the ground below was so distant. It might have been fully fifty meters away. The lesson, it seemed, was that things had to be incredibly close by before your brain could comprehend them well enough to feel fear. It was a rare brain that could feel strongly about anything if it wasn't close in space, close in time, near at hand, within easy reach. 
Before, Harry had imagined that going to Azkaban would require planning and cooperation from a grown-up confederate. Portkeys, broomsticks, invisibility spells. Some way of getting to the bottom levels without the Aurors noticing, so he could carve his way into the central pit where the shadows of death waited. And that had been enough to put the prospect away, into the future, safely apart from the now. He hadn't realized until today that it might be as simple as finding Fox and telling the Phoenix that it was time. Memories were rising up again, memories that Harry could never manage to forget for long. Though the stones beneath his feet were not smooth like metal, though the moonlit sky stretched all around him, somehow it was very easy to imagine himself trapped in a long metal corridor lit by dim orange light. The night was quiet, quiet enough for memories to be clearly audible. No, I didn't mean it. Please don't die. No, I didn't mean it. Please don't die. Don't take it away. Don't. Don't. The world blurred, and Harry wiped his eyes with his sleeve. If Hermione had been the one behind that door... If Hermione had been put in Azkaban, Harry would have called the Phoenix and gone there and burned away every last Dementor, and it wouldn't have made a single difference how crazy it was or what else he'd wanted to do with his life. That was just... That was... That was just how it was. And the woman who was behind that door, wasn't there someone, somewhere, to whom she too was precious? Wasn't it only Harry's distance from her life that was preventing his brain from being driven to Azkaban to save her no matter what? What would it have taken to compel him? Would he have needed to know her face? Her name? Her favorite color? Would he have been driven to Azkaban to save Tracy Davis? Would he have been compelled there to save Professor McGonagall? Mum and Dad, there wasn't even any question and that woman had said she was someone's mother. How many people had wished for the power to break Azkaban? How many prisoners of Azkaban dreamed nightly of such a miraculous rescue? None. It's a happy thought. Maybe he should harrow Azkaban. All he had to do was find Fox and tell him it was time. Visualize the center of the Dementor's pit as he'd seen it from the broomstick, and let the Phoenix take him there. Cast the true Patronus charm at point-blank range and to hell with what came after. All he had to do was go find Fox. It might be as simple as thinking of the flame, calling for the firebird in his heart. A star flashed in the night. By the time Harry's eyes had jumped with a reflex action trained on meteor showers, another part of him was surprised that the astronomical phenomenon was still there a faint star whose brightness was slowly, visibly waxing. There was a startled moment when Harry wondered whether he was seeing not a meteor, but a nova or supernova. Could you see them getting brighter like that? Was the first stage of a nova supposed to be that yellow-orange color? Then the new star moved again, and seemed to grow as well as brightening. It looked closer suddenly, no longer so far away that distance became moot, like what you thought was a star turning out to be an airplane, a lighted form whose shape you could actually see. No, not a plane. 
The realization seemed to spread out from Harry's chest like a wave of prickling, sweat preparing to break out. A bird. A piercing cry split the night, echoing from the rooftops of Hogwarts. The approaching creature trailed fire as it flew, shedding golden flames like sparks from its feathers as the mighty wings beat and beat again. Even as it swooped up in a great curve to hover a few paces away from Harry, even as the flames surrounding its passage diminished, the creature seemed no dimmer, no less bright, as though some unseen sun shone upon it and illuminated it. Great shining wings, red like a sunset and eyes like incandescent pearls, blazing with golden fire and determination. The phoenix's beak opened and let out a great caw that Harry understood as though it had been a spoken word. Come! Not even realizing, the boy stumbled back from the edge of the rooftop, eyes still locked on the phoenix, his whole body trembling and tensed, his fists clutching and releasing at his side, stepping back, stepping away. The phoenix caught again, a desperate, pleading sound. It didn't come through in words this time, but it came through in feelings, an echo of everything that Harry had ever felt about Azkaban and every temptation to action, to just do something about it, the desperate need to do something now and not delay any longer, all spoken in the cry of a bird. Let's go. It's time. The voice that spoke came from inside Harry, not from the phoenix. From so deep inside, it couldn't be given a separate name like Gryffindor. All he had to do was step forward and touch the phoenix's talons, and it would take him where he needed to be, where he kept thinking he ought to be, down into the central pit of Azkaban. Harry could see the image in his mind, shining with unbearable clarity. The image of himself suddenly smiling with joyous release as he threw all his fears away and chose. But I... Harry whispered, not even aware of what he was saying. Harry lifted his shaking hands to wipe at his eyes from which tears had sprung as the phoenix hovered before him with great wing sweeps. But I... But there's other people I also have to save. Other things I have to do. The firebird let out a piercing scream, and the boy flinched back as though from a blow. It wasn't a command, it wasn't an objection, it was the knowledge. The corridors lit by dim orange light. It felt like a tightening compulsion in Harry's chest, the desire to just do it and get it over with. He might die, but if he didn't die, he could feel clean again have principles that were more than excuses for inaction. It was his life, his to spend if he chose. He could do it any time he wanted, if he wasn't a good person. The boy stood there on the rooftop, his own eyes locked with two points of fire. The stars might have had time to shift in their constellations while he stood there, agonizing over the decision. That wouldn't... change. The boy's eyes flickered once to the stars above, and then he looked at the phoenix. Not yet, the boy said in a voice hardly audible. Not yet, 
There's too much else I have to do. Please come back later, when I've found others who can cast the true Patronus. In six months, maybe. Without word, without sound, a sphere of fire surrounded the bird's form, crackling and blazing with white and crimson veins as though it meant to consume that which lay within. And when the fire dispersed into gray smoke, no phoenix remained. There was silence on the top of the Ravenclaw Tower. The boy gradually lowered his hands from his ears, pausing only to wipe at his wet cheeks. Slowly, the boy turned, then cried out and leapt back and almost fell off the Ravenclaw Tower, though the misstep would hardly have mattered with that other wizard standing there. And so it was done, Albus Dumbledore said, almost in a whisper. So it was done. Fox was on his shoulder, staring at where the other phoenix had been with an indecipherable avian gaze. What are you doing here? Ah, said the ancient man, standing on the roof platform's opposite corner. I felt the presence of a creature Hogwarts did not know, and came to see, of course. Slowly, the old wizard's shaking hand came up to remove the half-moon glasses. His other hand wiped at his eyes and forehead with his robe sleeve. I dared. I dared not speak. I knew. I knew this choice above all choices must be your own. A strange apprehension was beginning to fill Harry, welling up in him like a sick feeling in his stomach. That everything depended on this, that much I knew. But which choice led into darkness, that I could not guess. At least the choice was your own. I don't, Harry said, and then his voice stopped. A terrible hypothesis, rising in credibility. The phoenix comes to those who would fight, to those who would act even at cost of their lives. The phoenix comes. Phoenixes are not wise, Harry. They know no means to judge us, save witnessing the choice. I thought it was to my death I went, when the phoenix took me to fight Grindelwald. I did not know that Fox would sustain me and heal me and stay by my side. The old wizard's voice quavered for a moment. It is not spoken of, you should realize, Harry, why it is never spoken of. If the one knew, the phoenix could not judge. But to you, Harry, I may say it now. For the phoenix comes only once. The old wizard walked across the top of the Ravenclaw Tower to where a boy stood rooted in dawning horror. In dawning and utter horror. Grindelwald, in our duel I could not win, only fight him for long hours until he fell in exhaustion, and I would have died of it afterwards if not for Fox. Harry didn't even know he was speaking until the whisper had escaped him. Then I could have. Could you have? 
said the ancient wizard, his voice sounding far older than his normal tones. Three times now a phoenix has come for my student. One did send hers away, and the grief of it broke her, I think. And the last was cousin to your young friend Lavender Brown, and he... The wizard's voice cracked. He did not return, did poor John, and he saved none of those he meant to save. It is said, among the few scholars of Phoenix lore, that not one in four returns from their ordeal, and even if you did survive, for the life you must lead, Harry, James, Potter, Evans, Varys, the choices you must make, and the path you must walk, to always hear the phoenix's cries. Who is to say it would not have driven you mad? The old wizard raised his sleeve again, drawing it once more across his face. I had more joy of Fox's companionship in the days before I fought Voldemort. The boy did not seem to be listening. All his eyes were on the red-gold bird on the ancient wizard's shoulder. Fox! Why won't you look at me, Fox? Fox craned his head to peer at the boy curiously, then turned back and resumed gazing at his master. See? He does not reject you. Fox may not be interested in you in quite that way now, and he knows. The wizard smiled wryly. That you are not exactly loyal to his master, but one to whom the phoenix comes at all cannot be one whom a phoenix would dislike. The wizard's voice fell to a whisper again. There never was a bird seen on Godric Gryffindor's shoulder. Though it is not written even in his secrets, I think he must have sent his phoenix away before he chose the red and gold for his colors. Perhaps the guilt of it urged him to greater lengths than he ever would have dared otherwise, or it might have taught him humility and respect for human frailty and failure. The wizard bowed his head. I truly do not know if your choice was wise. I truly do not know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing. If I knew Harry, I would have spoken. But I... Dumbledore's voice broke, then. I am nothing but a foolish young boy who has become a foolish old man, and I have no wisdom. Harry couldn't breathe, the nausea seeming to fill and overflow his whole body, stomach locked solid. He was suddenly and terribly certain that he had failed. In some final sense, failed. Failed this very night. The boy whirled and ran out to the curb of the Ravenclaw rooftop. Come back! His voice cracked, rising to a shriek. Come back! Final Aftermath she came awake with a gasp of horror. She woke with an unvoiced scream on her lips, and no words came forth. She could not understand what she had seen. 
she could not understand what she had seen. What time is it? She whispered. Her golden jeweled alarm clock whispered back. Around eleven at night. Go back to sleep. Her sheets were soaked in sweat. Her nightclothes soaked in sweat. She took her wand from beside the pillow and cleaned herself up before she tried to go back to sleep, and eventually succeeded. Sybil Trelawney went back to sleep. In the forbidden forest, a centaur woken by a nameless apprehension ceased scanning the night sky, having found only questions there and no answers. And with a folding of his many legs, Firenze went back to sleep. In the distant lands of magical Asia, an ancient witch named Fan Tong, sleeping the tired days away, told her anxious great-great-grandson that she was fine. It had only been a nightmare, and went back to sleep. In a land where Muggleborns received no letters of any kind, a girl child too young to have a name of her own was rocked in the arms of her annoyed but loving mother until she stopped crying and went back to sleep. None of them slept well. End chapter 85 Thank you to the following people. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Trelawney, Bipola. Female Prisoner, Mars. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit LessWrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the first part of Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing. 